morning. Some of you are sitting on each other's laps. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> sorry, uh, it is exciting that you're here, and sorry that it's a little warm in here. We're excited about getting over on the other side of that wall. They are drywalling now, so we are getting there. But we're glad that you're here this morning. I want to ask you this. I know it's kind of warm in the room, so I'm not sure what to expect, but I want to know, are you awake? You're awake? All right, some of you are awake. That's awesome. I, I, be, I want to be with you, I'm a, I'm a little tired today. I, as Pastor Caleb mentioned, I was serving at Camp Manawagon this past week, and we had a great week. The kids were amazing. We had a record number of kids there, and we had 25 first-time decisions for Jesus, which is incredible. Uh, because we had a record number of kids, what they had to do was they had to take the retreat center, which is normally where our staff sleeps, and they had to make that into a cabin, an extra girls' cabin, which is cool, and then they took those staff and they put some of them into the cabin that I normally stay in so I got displaced into this house across the street that I'd never stayed in before and I just want to say that the bed in that new in that house was terrible I didn't sleep at all all week it was the worst bed uh, but I had a great week and we're so glad that God did some amazing things it was totally worth a week of sleeplessness just to see what God did there for sure but it wasn't just me that was tired. I mean, by, by midweek, I was, I was running low, but you could tell the kids were too. Like these campers, when you get to Wednesday, especially Thursday, you could tell they were dragging, especially in the mornings. We would have breakfast, and you could tell they were kind of sleepy-eyed or whatever. And I had devotions, morning devotions, Thursday morning for the campers. And I thought it went okay. I, I, I thought they were, you know, they were quiet, so I thought things went well. Well, after it was all done, there was an adult that was in the room, uh, who came up to me afterwards and said, hey, they were not engaged with what you were talking about, and half of them were sleeping, uh, but it's okay. I'm sure they were just tired. I'm like, well, I guess, I guess I didn't do as good a job as I thought that I had done. They were dragging. But you probably heard the saying, I have this coffee mug up here. Uh, you probably heard the saying, wake up and smell the coffee. Have you heard that saying before? Wake up and smell the coffee. And I think it's such a weird saying because when I wake up in the morning and I'm tired, I don't just want to smell coffee. I need to drink coffee. So it's a, it's a weird thing to say, wake up and smell the coffee. But it's a figure of speech that means we need to pay attention. It's a figure of speech that means that, that, that we need to be aware of what is happening around us. And this morning, as we visit the city, the ancient city of Sardis, we are Taking a tour, I was, for those of you who haven't been with us, I went to Turkey uh, back in March and we toured through some ancient cities that are written to in the book of Revelation and got a chance to learn a, a lot of really cool things. And today we're, we're in Sardis, this is week five, so if you missed any of the previous four weeks, you can go to our website, gracefellowship.online, click the sermons button, there's a playlist of all the sermons there, you can even get the podcast version of it if you want to listen to it on your way to uh, work or, or vacation or whatever. But we are, we are in Sardis this morning, and we're going to listen to Jesus tell this church they need to wake up. And if you hear that phrase, because I know over the last couple years, some of us have heard the phrase, be woke, and maybe uh, you hear me saying, we need to wake up, and the bristles on the back of your neck, because you're tired of the woke, I'm, that's not what this sermon is about. Jesus is not going to tell the church of Sardis to be woke. 
Jesus is going to challenge them and he's going to challenge us. Sometimes we need to wake up and in the sense of wake up and smell the coffee, just be aware and alert of what was happening in their church and what was happening in some of their lives that some of them weren't even aware that was happening. So if you would, grab a Bible. If you don't, if you don't have one with you this morning, uh, you can grab the Bible in front of you. Go to Revelation chapter 3. Join me there, Revelation chapter 3. If you have your phone or your tablet, if you go to gracefellowship.online and you click on the digital bulletin button, you uh, about halfway down, you'll see notes, and you click on that, and all the verses that I'm going to reference this morning are in there. You can take notes from there as well. The city, the ancient city of Sardis, was about 35 miles from Thyatira. That's where we were last week, and it was a very wealthy city. And it was, it was known as a wealthy city. They were an, ex, an exporter of this high-end wool, and they used that high-end wool to make some high-end outer garments. So imagine in today's context, if North Face, if Columbia, if Carhartt had a manufacturing plant, they most likely would want to have it in Sardis. So they were known for that. They were known for being wealthy. They were known for this high-end wool. But they were also known for, for their perversion, for their pleasure-seeking lifestyle. They were known for that. Now, if you've been with us, you're like, well, weren't all the cities that way? And yes, so far we've seen city after city, week after week, just every city has been pagan and sexual immorality has been part of their, uh, their lifestyle. But think about this. This was the city that all the other cities looked at and said, seriously, Sardis, you need to dial it down because you are out of control with your pleasure-seeking lifestyle. So we know that it was really bad in Sardis when it comes to sexual immorality and and pleasure-seeking and perversion and all these kinds of things. And so take that understanding into verse 1. As Jesus says, write this letter. So Jesus is instructing the Apostle John to write this letter to the angel, to the elders, to the pastor of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold Spirit of God and the seven stars. Now, we don't have time to get into all of that. Just know that that is an Old Testament reference to the character, the nature of God. Jesus is describing himself as divine. He's making sure that he is... Uh, making that claim clear to the people of of Sardis that he is Messiah, he is God. And so what he's about to say, he has authority in what he's saying. Here's what he said. First, he says, I know all the things you do. I know all your deeds. Now, it's interesting that Jesus said the exact same thing to the church in Thyatira last week. He said, I I know your deeds. I know all the things you do. And when he said it to Thyatira, it was a compliment. When he said it to Thyatira, he was saying, I know all about your spiritual life. I know about your love. I know about your faith. I know about your service and your perseverance when things get hard. And so when Jesus said to Thyatira, "Uh, I know your deeds, it was a compliment. But when Jesus says it here in Sardis, I know your deeds, it is not a compliment. It is a criticism. The tone of it is like this. 
Maybe you've never experienced that. Maybe you were much better behaved as a child than I was. But some of you can relate. Like when your mom sits you down and says, come in here, sit. We need to talk. I know what you did. Right? If you ever had that experience growing up, that is the tone of this letter. Where Jesus is saying, guys, sit down. We need to talk. I know what you've been doing. It's a harsh tone. And he says to them, you have this... You have a reputation for being alive, but you're not. He says here in this verse, you have this reputation for being alive, but you're dead. What does he mean they're dead? Well, they can't be physically dead or be no point in writing a letter to them. So when Jesus is talking about you're dead, he's he's saying spiritually you're dead. What, What does that mean? What does that look like for a church to be spiritually dead? What does it mean for a person to be spiritually dead? Are these people not saved? Are they, are they gathering together as a church and they're not, they're not truly saved? Are they no longer effective in ministry? Are, are they just, maybe they're not following Christ the way that they should. Maybe uh, they're not fully surrendered to the Holy Spirit the way they should be. What does, what does Jesus mean? Well, if Thyatira was known for spiritual life, and that spiritual life was defined by their love, defined by their faith, defined by their service and their perseverance... Well, then this contrast in Sardis of being spiritually dead most likely means there was an absence of love. There was an absence of strong faith. There's an absence of service. There's an absence of perseverance. I have a a few pictures. This is a picture of the temple of Artemis. Artemis is a temple that we, we heard about in Ephesus, which was the biggest, most famous temple of Artemis. This was like number two. This was a huge temple. And you can see based on the people, the size of the people versus the pillars, just how massive this structure was. This was a a friend that I met, another pastor from out in in Seattle. So you have this this temple of Artemis, this pagan temple. And if you go to the the next picture, I want you to see this is a Jewish synagogue. So the, the temple of Artemis is about a mile, maybe not even that far down the road from this Jewish synagogue. The next picture I want you to see is this gymnasium, right? This gymnasium doesn't, it didn't come out of the ground looking like that. There was an archaeologist that got all these ruins and reconstructed it. And this is what it would have looked like in the ancient, in the ancient time. So this is the entrance, the entrance to a gymnasium. And the gymnasium at that time isn't where you just go and work out like we have today. There was all kinds of things that would happen It was like the epicenter of entertainment. It was the epicenter of business. And so at the gymnasium, uh, it would be like a spa. You could go to uh, have a massage and enjoy the baths. Uh, There would be businesses, like an outdoor mall that would be there. Uh, You could could uh, listen to a lecture uh, from some philosopher or something like that. They also had sporting events, sports that you could participate in. They had, if you can imagine, they had naked wrestling. And that'd be something that, remember, this is Sardis, and so everything is perverse. And uh, that'd be something that people would go to the gymnasium to participate in. Now, if you think about an epicenter of business, and and this is where the wealthy people go, in today's modern context, imagine like when when business folks, they they go golfing, right? They go golfing and they enjoy, uh, yes, a day of golf, but they're doing business. It's, It's how business oftentimes gets done. So think of it. Think of it like that. So I want you to take all of these pictures. You've got 
the gymnasium where there's some things going on uh, that are, are kind of perverse. And then right up the road, you have the Temple of Artemis, this, this pagan temple, and there's all kinds of bad things happening there. And right in the middle of it, actually attached to the gymnasium, is this Jewish synagogue. And what that tells us archaeologically is that the persecution that we've been seeing in each one of these other ancient cities, in Sardis, not so much. In Sardis, you could have the, the, the pagan temple a mile away from the synagogue. The synagogue could be attached to the uh, gymnasium. You could be a Christian in Sardis and say, now, I don't, I don't want to worship Artemis. I don't want to worship Zeus. I want to worship Jesus. I want to worship, in the Jewish case, I want to worship Yahweh. And the people of Sardis would be like, I don't care, whatever. And so there was not this level of persecution that we have seen other places. So keep that in mind when we listen to what Jesus says. He's saying to them, you have this reputation for being alive, but you're not. You're spiritually dead. You're spiritually awake. So apparently, this group of of churchgoers who would gather together and claim the name of Jesus didn't look any different in their lifestyle, in the way that they lived their lives, than the pagans who would go to the temple of Artemis, the people who would gather at the gymnasium and do all of these perverse things. It causes me to pause and wonder in our current context, in our modern context, do people know that we are different? We gather together and we sing songs about Jesus and we read the Bible together, but then when you go out that door, back to work, back to school, do the people that you interact with during the week Do they know you love Jesus? Do they see something different in you and in me than they do with the rest of the culture? We build this picture again here in verse 2 where Jesus says to them, uh, you need to wake up. And what Jesus means by that is in in the way we would say you need to wake up and smell the coffee. If you think about being asleep, and some of you are like, yeah, I'm way ahead of you. I've been sleeping for the last 10 minutes. When, when you're asleep, you're unconscious. When you are asleep, you are inactive. You are not tethered to reality. So being spiritually asleep, it paints this picture for us of being spiritually unconscious. Just going through the motions of religious activity. I, I have a friend, a pastor of of another church, you wouldn't know him, but he told me this story of a guy in his church that has a one-hour policy, and what that means is this guy says, "I'm, I'm only staying for an hour. You can preach as long as you want. I'm only staying for an hour. That's what he said out loud, and he means it. If If the service goes one minute longer than an hour, he gets up and walks out. And you think about what what kind of spiritual life does someone like that have? Like, I understand no one wants to be here a half hour, 45 minutes longer than we're supposed to. I get that. But think about someone who would say, you know what? You got an hour, and then I'm out. For someone like that, they're spiritually, most likely, unconscious, spiritually apathetic. They're just checking off the box. This is a religious activity that I think I'm supposed to do because that's what God said I'm supposed to do. But I'm not really engaged. I'm not really interested in anything. I just want to get it done and get on with my day. 
Jesus says here, you need to wake up from your spiritual slumber. Then he says, strengthen what remains, strengthen what is about to die because your deeds are not complete in the sight of God. So you take all of those pictures, all of those images, these word pictures that Jesus is painting of this church, and I think we get a clearer picture of what Jesus is saying about the church in Sardis. So he uses the phrase dead, almost dead, spiritually sleeping. We get this picture of a church that is not effective in ministry. They're not reaching the lost. They're not serving. They are apathetic. And yeah, they probably have people who are attending the gathering and don't really know Jesus in a saving faith kind of way. Jesus described this type of faith or this, this type of religious activity that is void of faith in Matthew chapter 7. Now, I'll have it on the screen for you. You can follow along there. Matthew 7, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, what day? The day of judgment, the day that we all will stand before Jesus. And on judgment day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name, did we not drive out demons and perform miracles? We did all of these religious activities. And Jesus said, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. I don't know you. Away from me, you evildoers. And it's kind of an unsettling picture that people who do religious activity and think that they are right with God somehow are not. And that very well may be the picture of some of those who are gathering here in Sardis. I have this picture for you. This is a church building that was built in the 4th century in the Byzantine era. So if you're into history, you probably already know this. If you're not... Just bear with me. When Constantine was the emperor of the empire, he made Christianity the state church. And in the process of all of that, a lot of these temples, these pagan temples, got destroyed. And that certainly was the case of, of this uh, temple of Artemis. Now go to the next picture. I want you to see where this Byzantine church, this 4th century church, was built. It's right, it's right here in this corner. You see the bricks? I should have taken a better picture. I apologize. But over here... That little corner where those bricks are, that's where that church was built. Now, I just want you to get the image in your mind. Now, why did they build it there? I mean, the temple was already destroyed. It's probably cheap land, you know, you know how church sometimes can go the cheap route or whatever. So maybe they just had cheap land, but they built it right there. But I want you to get this image in your mind. You've got this pagan temple, and right on the same property, like connecting to the pagan temple, is a church. You go back to the gymnasium in your mind. Right there, you've got all this perversion and all these kinds of wicked things happening at the gymnasium, and right connected to it is the Jewish synagogue. And I just want you to have that image in your mind of, of, of what it would look like to be spiritually asleep, spiritually unconscious and apathetic and ineffective, that, it, that there's no separation in your life between the way you live and the way an unbeliever lives. It's all the same. In my role with the National Fellowship, I get to meet pastors from all over the country. And some of these pastors have big churches, and some have small and, and medium and everything in between, right? And I, I meet these pastors, and I have heard so many stories over and over again 
stories of some of these pastors who are trying really, really hard to lead dying churches. Some who are struggling, trying to breathe new life into a dead church. And here's what, here's what normally happens in these situations. You, you would have a, a church who year after year, they are dwindling in numbers over a 10-year period. They're like, okay, we had 100, now this year you know, we're down to 80 and so forth. Now we're like 40 people in the room, right? So this happens, and as the numbers decrease, the age of those in the room increases. This is a common story in churches throughout America. And at some point, those within the church look around and they realize there's a problem. They realize that if we keep on this trend, there's not going to be any of us left and they're going to close the doors of this building forever. And they don't like the idea of that. And so they're like, what do we do? How do we fix this? And most of the time, nine times out of ten, what they will do is they will try to hire a young pastor. And in their mind, all we have to do is just hire someone young. And, and that'll fix the problem. So they do. They hire someone who is, who is young. They've got a young family. They come in. And that young pastor says, here are five things I think we can do over the next several years that will help breathe life back into this church. And the people in that church look at him like he's got three heads. And they say, we're not doing any of those things. And so the, the pastor's like, well, isn't that why? Isn't that why you brought me here? And, and the people in the church will say, yeah, we brought you here because you're young and we we're hoping that you, would, uh, that you would bring in new families, young families. And uh, the pastor's like, yeah, that's why you brought me here, uh, but here's some things I think we can do to change. But they don't want to change. So what happens? What happens is there's there's these unmet expectations between the pastor and, and the church, and, and nothing gets fixed. Nothing changes. Guess how many young families with beautiful girls that don't want to sit through my boring sermon, right? <laughs> Guess what happens? There's no young families that are attracted. There's no young families that are coming, and then that church turns on him. I'm like, you're the problem. We thought you would fix it. You're young. Why didn't you fix it? And he's like, I tried to fix it. This, this is a story that gets repeated over and over again. And what I have noticed is that all dying or dead churches have a similar mindset. And this is an observation over 20 plus years in ministry. What I've noticed, there's this mindset of this is the way we've always done it. And we're not going to change until Jesus comes back. We've got, we've got to keep all the people who are here happy because if we, if we make them mad, then they might leave and they'll take their money with them. We can't do anything to upset them. There's this idea or this mindset in dying churches where they look around, they see that things are dwindling, that things are getting rough, but they're like, you know what? The, the last one who is alive, like we're all going to die. And the last one alive, just make sure you turn the lights out before you die. That's the mentality. And I just want to say this to you, Grace Fellowship. I just want to say that I am so incredibly thankful that this is not our story. I am so, I am so proud of Grace Fellowship. I am so incredibly thankful that the story of Sardis has not been our story. Because we decided many, many years ago 
that we were just going to be okay with trying new things. That we had, when I started, we still had ministry that looked like it was 50, 60 years old. And the group in the room said, you know what, we've got to change. And, and we're willing to do that. We're willing, we want this to be a place. This is what our, our church said many years ago. We want Grace Fellowship to be a place where our kids, where our grandkids love to come. And we're willing to do some things to change. We're willing to take some risks and, uh, and even mix up the way that we do things. Now, we have never and will never stray from the truth. That's something that doesn't change. The truth back then is still the truth today, and we're going to stay firm on the Word of God as our standard for life, the gospel as our only means of faith through Jesus Christ to be made right with God. That's not going to change. But our styles have changed. Our methods have changed. And I want to say this to those of you, I, I, I had a blast last service because the, the bulk of our older crowd was in that first service, and it was just a lot of fun to say this to them. And I'll say it to you too. If you're in an older generation, and you can self-define what that means, right? If you're in an older generation, however you would define that for yourself, if you put yourself into that category or not, I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you because uh, years ago we made this decision uh, to add a modern service, the one you're sitting in now. And there was a group of people in the room that said, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's look ahead and see if we can figure out how uh, we're going to be okay with this. We're going to be okay and uh, let's, let's figure out how we reach younger families. And if you're one of the older folks who were back then, said that we're going to be okay with this, thank you. We held on to the truth of God's word, but we added a modern worship style service. I love the fact that when we went through all of that, I say it this way, the, the older folks in the room did not light their hair on fire whenever the style of clothing began to change. I am my polo shirt. Thank you for that. <laughs> and I don't mean it in a service level way. Sincerely, thank you. I also want to say this as a challenge to those of you who are my age, and if you're kind of around my age, let's say you're in that 30 to 50 range somewhere. If you're, if you're in this generation that is, that is coming up through, we are following that older generation that said, we're okay, let's, let's figure out how to make this a place our kids and grandkids love to be. Those of us who are coming behind them, we have to make sure that we follow their example. We have to make sure that as, as we continue uh, to get older, that we're still okay with things changing, not the word of God, but the way that we do things. And I'm just going to tell you this now. I know the, it's hot in here. We don't have enough room. We're all excited to get over on the other side of that wall, for sure. But here's what you need to understand. When we do move to the other side of that wall, it's going to look different. The stage isn't going to look like this. The, the lighting, we, we are spending a lot. We, we are investing in an incredible sound system that has lights and all the kind of things that our younger generations are going to connect to. It's probably going to be a little bit louder. And it might get a little more vibrant. Right? And we're going to, you know, I know Kathy's ready to do it now. Let's, like, Let's go! It's fine. I, I like it too. But when we move over there, it's not going to be exactly like it is. Yeah, it's going to be more room and the air conditioning is going to work better. All that's going to be cool. But we want to make sure that we are investing in a place, in a, in a facility 
but not just the facility, but in a mindset. What can we do as a church to make sure we engage with younger families, that this is a place every weekend that our kids can't wait to get to, that our grandkids can't wait to get to? And I'll say this to the students in, in the room, because you've, you've got a different set of challenges in this. Like, most of our students aren't like, you know, I, I went to the first grade class, and now I'm in the fifth grade class, and I can't stand it. I wish we would do things the way we did them in the first grade class. That's not, that's not your experience. That's not your challenge. You've got a different challenge in life, because, you know, when you're younger, you love Grace Kids. You can't wait to be here. And uh, you love VBS, and you love going to camp. But what I've noticed is sometimes as students get into middle school, when they get into high school, when they get into college, sometimes they lose interest. Sometimes they uh, uh, become too cool to go to church. They have other interests that they would rather pursue. They don't want to go to youth group because it's this or it's that or it's not as fun as something else I'd like to go do. And sometimes what happens is as students get a little bit older, if we're not careful, they become apathetic in their faith. Jesus is no longer a priority, and their faith looks dead. Their faith looks asleep. And I'll say it like this. If, if you get too comfortable with the darkness in our culture, we can get to a place where we're no longer bothered by the things that should disgust us in our culture. And I'll illustrate it this way. My, my roommate at camp, I was over at this house, and I had a room, and there, were, uh, there was another married couple across the hall, and there was uh, some other lady down, down the hall, and there was two guys downstairs. So there was a bunch of us in this house. And I got up one morning to get uh, a shower, and when I got in there, I noticed, oh, that, you, know, you see the fog or whatever on the mirror. Someone's already been here. So I go in, and, and uh, I turn on, turn on the water. You can tell it's an old, junky house. You, and this is how you turn on the water, right? So I'm turning on the, on the water, and that's when I see this enormous hair clump do this around the drain. And I was like, no, mm-mm, mm-mm. And I couldn't get in, and so I, I, got, I got a huge wad of toilet paper out, and I'm like, terrible. So I got my shower, got all cleaned up. I went out to the, the living area, and the other, my, my roommate, uh, he was out there. He'd already showered. And I told him about, you know, this, this awful, this, uh, this, this terrible experience that I just had in, in the shower, right? And I'm expecting him to be like, oh, that's awful, right? No. His reaction was, yeah, I saw that. What? <laughs> you saw it, and you left it there. Something is wrong with you. <laughs> Students, don't be like my roommate in a number of ways. But don't be like my roommate in the sense that as a follower of Jesus Christ, sin should disgust us like a hair clump circling the drain. Don't get comfortable with the darkness in our culture. You've got to fight that temptation now where you're young. If, you just, if, if you're of the mindset, if you're at the place in life where you're just jumping into the shower with a hair clump and it doesn't bother you, 
because you are totally fine with the disgusting things that are on TV and in music and social media. Like it's, it, you become desensitized to it. It's time to wake up. Because here's what happens. When we, be, when we get to this place where it doesn't bother us, when, when the disgusting things of sin don't bother us anymore, we're like, okay with it. The next step, when we become desensitized, the next step is we begin to participate in it. Because evil doesn't rest. Sin doesn't rest. Sin's not satisfied that you're okay with sin doing what sin does. No, sin wants you to participate. And you've got to fight that battle now while you're young. You've got to fight the battle of apathy now while you're young. Verse 3, what's the solution to this? The solution to being a dead, dying, sleeping church or spiritually dead inside or sleeping as a person is in verse 3. Jesus says this, Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. The solution is to remember the gospel message. The gospel message is one of transformation. Yes, the gospel is that Jesus forgives us, that he cleanses us from sin. He paid our sin debt on the cross, and he rose from the dead to prove his victory over sin and death. The gospel is that. But it's also very much a message of transformation. That Jesus doesn't just want to forgive us and wash us clean. He wants to transform our lives. Jesus says you need to remember the word of God. Not in the sense that, oh, that's right, that's what Jesus said. Hmm, that's nice. No, in the sense that we go back, we repent of where we've stepped out of bounds, and we come back and obey Jesus. It's a simple solution. And Jesus talks about these harsh consequences for ignoring the warning, he says, if you don't wake up, I will come like a thief, and you're not going to know when. Now, I know some of you who've been around church for a while, you hear that, and it sounds a lot like some of the phraseology, some of the, the, the things that we see in Scripture, hear in Scripture about the return of Jesus for the church. It sounds a lot like that, but that's really not what Jesus is, is talking about. There's a, there's a picture that he's painting for the people of Sardis that they would get and understand. The city of Sardis was actually at the top of that mountain in the background. This is the low uh, plain area that some of the temples were at. There was a lot of uh, things happening in the, in the plains area. But the main city was at the top of that mountain. And you see how steep the cliffs are. There was one way in, which meant there was one way out. And so they had a reputation in Sardis of being invincible. There's no way. You, you can't get into this city except... One way, and so all we have to do is just concentrate our forces right here, and, and you can't beat us unless you fall asleep, unless your guards fall asleep, which happened twice in this city's history. They had two embarrassing and devastating defeats as a city because some guards fell asleep and didn't do their job. Jesus is saying to the Folks in Sardis, you need to wake up before it's too late. And I bring, Jesus brings, surprise judgment on you. I'll illustrate it kind of like this. When, when I do premarital counseling, I meet with couples before the, the wedding, and we talk about marriage. We don't just plan the ceremony. We talk about marriage. And one of the things that I always like to share with couples that I do their weddings 
is this idea that at least once a year, it's better if you can do it twice, but when you have kids, it's harder to you know, have date night or whatever, but at least once a year, uh, go out for a, a, a nice meal together and maybe go away for the weekend and enjoy that time together, but with a specific and intentional purpose of evaluating your marriage and ask specific questions. What is strong in our marriage right now? Where are the weaknesses? What could we be doing better? And then it's the conversation back and forth. Well, I'll ask my wife, what am I doing as your husband that uh, you appreciate, that, that, uh, that is communicating that I love you? Because I want to keep doing those things. Because maybe I'm doing it and don't even think about it. And she says, no, I, I appreciate that. Then the next question is, what, what can I be doing better? How, how can I better communicate to you that I love you? How can I demonstrate to, that to you? Are there, are there things that I'm doing or not doing that need to change? And we have that conversation. So I encourage young couples as they're getting married to plan for that. Here's why. Because couples that don't evaluate their, their marriages and their relationships, not all the time, but oftentimes what will happen 10 years, 15 years down the road, they've got this bucket of marriage garbage that they're dragging around. And all these stupid little things that shouldn't make be a big deal, shouldn't make anyone mad, they're like overflowing out over the top, and they're driving them nuts, and they're sick and tired of dragging this bucket around, and they're like, we're done. We looked at this stuff, and it, it, this irritates me, and this irritates me. I'm like, really? That's, that's your biggest problem? Well, actually, it's down halfway through the bucket here of what really is the problem. How do we, how do we even get, uh, get a handle on this? Where do we even start? We think we're done. Here's the good news. The good news is even bad marriages can be restored with the help of Jesus. I've seen it happen. It's not easy, but Jesus can restore marriages. The other good news is this. Even a spiritually apathetic person, even a spiritually dead church, can have new life breathed back into it with the help of Jesus. I've seen it happen. What's our responsibility? If Jesus brings the spiritual life, if Jesus brings the energy, if Jesus brings the restoration, what's our responsibility? Jesus said, your responsibility, repentance and obedience. Repentance and obedience. Verse 4. Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious, will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and His angels that they are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what He is saying to the churches. It's a pretty harsh letter, for sure, but it's not all bad news. There, there were a few people in Sardis who had not soiled their clothes, who had not compromised their faith. They weren't spiritually dead. They weren't spiritually asleep. And Jesus makes them two promises. The first promise to the true believer, to the overcomer, is that one day they will walk with Jesus in white robes. Jesus repeats that phrase, dressed in white. And I think he repeats it because the people of Sardis, there, there was something that, that, that would take place when it came to, uh, to cleaning white garments. Remember? You talk about these togas and, and this uh, high-end wool. You had all this kind of fabric 
uh, stuff going on in the city. And there was a process to cleaning white togas that they would have understood. I want to describe it to you this way. If you, uh, if, especially if you were wealthy, let's say you would gather up all of your white togas and they're filthy and whatever and they, they, they have stains and, and they need to be cleaned. You would take them to the gymnasium because this is going to be an all-day event. And so you would take your clothes and you would hand them over to the staff and then you would go do whatever it is you were going to go do. Catch a lecture. Uh, if you were a pagan, maybe you are going to get involved in naked wrestling. I don't know what you are going to do. Uh, go to the bath and, and get a massage. But there would be these activities that you would participate in while they were cleaning your clothes. And there were a couple jobs involved in cleaning clothes. One of the jobs uh, had to do with collecting the material for the cleaning agent. The way they would clean clothes was with urine. And so one of the jobs, if you're looking for a summer job, uh, one of the jobs would be to go around and collect urine because there's ammonia in urine. That would be the cleaning agent that they would use. And I don't really want to collect urine. Okay, how about this for a summer job? How about you could sign up or, or um, apply for the job where you stomped the clothes soaked in urine? That was a job. After they would soak the clothes and clean the clothes in the urine, they would have to rinse it because it always is gross and it stinks and they would use rose water to rinse it out. The next step, they would take it to another station, and they would, uh, they would steam it with sulfur. You've all smelled sulfur, right? So you've got this rotten egg smell of sulfur, and that's how they made the, the bright whites come back. Well, now it needs rinsed with rose water again. So imagine, this is a really long and involved process to take something that was stained and gross and dirty and make it white again. Now you get the picture that Jesus is painting, all that he has done for us. He's taken our stained, gross, disgusting sin, and he did all the work that was necessary so that we can walk with him in heaven with white robes. He did that for us. That's the first promise. The second promise to the overcomer is that he'll never blot out that person's name from the book of life. Rather, acknowledge his name before his father and his angels, which brings up a debate about salvation. When a person identifies as a Christian, let's say they can, they can point to a time in their past. I said the sinner's prayer at camp. Uh, I said the sinner's prayer. I repeated this prayer at, at Bible school. Uh, I got baptized. I, I can point back to this, this moment in time when I did this religious thing. And yet you look at that person's life in the current moment and there's like no interest in following Jesus. Their life looks no different than an unbeliever. And the question uh, is, well, did that person lose their salvation or were they never saved in the first place? And that, that debate goes back and forth. I believe the, the biblical evidence points to those who, who do not persevere in their faith, those with no desire to fully surrender to the Spirit of God, who, who look no different than the unbeliever, I believe the biblical evidence points that they were never saved in the first place, that they never truly surrendered their heart to Jesus. But, you know, if you, if you disagree with me, that's fine. If you think that person has lost their salvation along the way, here's, here's the thing. The end result, still the same. The end result is still the same. It's still eternal separation from God, like Jesus described in Matthew 7. You're, you're doing religious activity, but you don't really know Jesus. And so if that is, is you and, and, and you look at your life and it doesn't match up with someone who truly loves Jesus and wants to 
follow Jesus and a life that's being transformed by Jesus, if that's not your experience right now, why isn't it your experience? And it may be time to wake up. And so I'll finish with the question I started with. Are you awake? And I'm not asking if you are woke. I'm asking if you are spiritually awake. Are you aware? Are you alert and active in your faith? Are you on guard against sin? And I think it's a challenging question, not just because it's uncomfortable, because it makes us look inside. It's challenging because when someone's asleep, they're unconscious. They don't know they're asleep because they're unconscious. And hopefully this morning, you're not physically asleep right now like those campers during my Thursday morning devotions. And if you are, if you are physically awake, then you're able to ask hard questions. You're able to look at the evidence of your own life. You can ask questions like, am I inactive in my faith? Am I not loving others? Am I not serving God? Am I not serving others? Am I not really persevering in obedience to God? You can evaluate that. And if you, if you come up with answers that uh, don't give evidence of spiritual life, then it may be time to wake up. You can ask questions like, am I unconscious in my faith? I'm, uh, I'm just going through the motions of religious activity. I, I attend church because I guess that's what religious people do, but I can't wait to get it over with so I can get on with the rest of my week. Or maybe your, your experience is you're not bothered with that hair clump that's circling the drain. It doesn't gross you out anymore. In fact, you're kind of like, oh, that's kind of cool, whatever. If that's your experience, spiritually speaking, it's... And it's time to wake up. And so the challenge from my heart to yours, sometime today, sometime this week, spiritually pinch yourself to see if you are awake. How about this? Ask your spouse. Ask your kids. Kids, ask your parents. Do you, do you, see, do you see something in me? of like a spiritual dozing off some area of my life where I'm not following Jesus? Do you see that in me? Am I missing it? It might be an uncomfortable conversation, but I'm telling you it's better than to wake up and it's too late. Wake up and smell the coffee. Lord, help us.